0: A very warm welcome to our good friday service for this year let's just have a moment of quiet and then I'll say an opening prayer so let's pray eternal god in the cross of jesus we see the cost of our sin and the depth of your love in humble hope and fear may we place at his feet all that we have and all that we are, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our service today will follow a pattern that includes songs and hymns, Bible readings, reflections, music and a response from Psalm 31. The service will flow without introductions. The Reflections have been written by Debbie and are adapted for the service from the writings of Cara Murphy, Lisa Turkhurst, and Max Picardo, respectively. After each piece of music, we'll respond with these words that come from Psalm 31, verse 24. So when I say, be strong and let your heart take courage, if you'd respond with all you who wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your hearts take courage, all you who wait for the Lord.
1: Spain entered our world, your glory there, not to be served, but to serve, and give your life that we might live, this is our God. Servant King, he calls us now to fall in to bring.
0: to join in with a confession now, and the words that I'd like you to join in with will be in bold on the screen. God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us then show our love for him by confessing our sins in penitence and faith. Lord Jesus Christ. We confess we have failed you, as did your first disciples. We ask for your mercy and your help. Our selfishness betrays you. Lord, forgive us. Christ, have mercy. We fail to share the pain of your suffering. Lord, forgive us. Christ, have mercy. We run away from those who abuse you. Lord, forgive us. Christ, have mercy. We are afraid of being known to belong to you. Lord, forgive us. Christ, have mercy.
2: The reading is taken from Mark, chapter 14, beginning to read at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, again he found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of God.
3: Why are you sleeping? Have you ever thought how shocking and how strange it is that at this moment of fear and crisis, as they see their Lord in a place of anguish, intense distress, exceeding sorrow to the point of death, that the disciples, instead of keeping watch as they were asked to do, fall asleep? At this point, it seems like the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Word made flesh, can't find the words to express the intensity of the pain and anguish he is feeling. The disciples had never encountered this in Jesus before. They had seen him handle the Pharisees, weep without shame, Feed hungry crowds, still violent storms, and cast out demons, but never this. In a moment of holy mystery, in his humanness, Jesus needed them. He needed their companionship and solidarity in this most agonising moment of turmoil, vulnerability, and incomprehensible suffering. This bleeding, prostrate Jesus was shocking, and he was utterly unfamiliar, even to his closest friends. You would think they would stay awake, wide awake. It was the one thing he asked of them, and yet they fell asleep. Their falling asleep is recorded in three out of four of the Gospel narratives. And so it seems that the very people who fell asleep made sure that their spectacular failure would not be forgotten. Indeed, the narrative that we just heard read tells us that they didn't just fall asleep once, but three times. Don't leave me, Jesus implored them. Three times he asked them to keep watch with him. And three times they abandoned the Son of God in sleep. Perhaps the three times has echoes of Peter's devastating denial that was to come shortly afterwards. It seems such a simple request, stay awake. But perhaps with closer examination, there is almost none more difficult a request to honour. I wonder what excuses they made when he asked them, why are you sleeping? I wonder how familiar these excuses might sound to you and to me. You see, like them, we too are asked the question, why are you sleeping? I wonder what reason we could offer in our defence. What can be said in answer to the grieving Jesus, the one who simply wants our company as we wait for his will to unfold? The situation in the garden was unparalleled. The anguish of Jesus as he cried out to God for this cup to be taken away from him leaves even those of us reading it breathless, confused and disturbed, let alone the disciples. Waiting is hard. They certainly found it more than they could cope with. Often we'd rather sleep than engage in the pain and struggle of our healing and transformation. The struggle, of course, is nothing compared to that of our innocent Saviour's wrestling in Gethsemane. But sometimes Jesus asks us to wait with him in the dark. And like the disciples, we choose not to. It's too frightening. It's too hard. We'd rather engage elsewhere. And so we fall asleep to what God is doing. It's easier that way. You see, waiting can feel like abandonment. And Jesus was abandoned that night by his closest friends on the only occasion he needed them. After a little while, we nod off in order to avoid the feelings of helplessness we can experience as we wait on God. Can you not wait with me one hour, Jesus asked us. The disciples seemed helpless in heeding his request. But we want to wait with Jesus, we really do. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Somehow the pain and stress of having to wait on him and with him in those difficult seasons causes them and perhaps us, to fall into fitful sleep. Moreover, I think what Jesus saw in Peter when he asked him why he was sleeping, he sees in us. The God who awakens looks deep into our heart and knows that there is a battle being waged there in every moment and every breath. Alongside our laziness and our unwillingness to wait for him, He also sees our love for him. He sees that, like Peter, we are eager and passionate for him. He sees that we have tasted his goodness and want more of him. And it is only when we acknowledge our propensities, both readiness and laziness, and do not expect Jesus to give up on us because of it, that we begin to wake up from our sleep. When we allow this complexity to become true, We are present to both ourselves and to Jesus, and we begin to wake up. And the most amazing paradox of it all is that Jesus, who went to the cross, is complex too. His divinity and his humanity make him unfathomable. He holds justice in one hand and mercy in the other. Both love and wrath are within him, and sorrow and joy remain true to his holy being. And when Jesus asks us to wake up and to keep watch with him, he invites us to experience a different kind of sleep called rest. You see, the risen God is awake. He will never slumber or sleep. He is ever watchful in the wait with us, and he draws close to us and whispers, Come to me, and I will give you rest. your
4: hearts take courage all who wait for the Lord I will offer up my life in spirit and truth pouring out the oil of love as my worship to you in surrender I must give My every part Lord, receive the sacrifice Of a broken heart Jesus, what can I give? What can I bring? To so faithful a friend To so loving a King Savior, what can be said? What can be sung as a praise of your name for the things you have done all my words could not tell not even in part of the debt of love that is owed by this thankful. You deserve my every breath, for you paid the great cost, giving up your life to death, even death on a cross. You took all my shame away, that defeated my sin, opened up the gates of hell, and have been. What can I give, what can I bring To so faithful a friend, to so loving a king Savior, what can be said, what can be sung As a praise of your name, for the things you have done Oh my world
5: him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside. And wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
0: be to God. The denial and the look that passed between them. Have you ever been in that place of utter disbelief, where the pain and the shock of something feels overwhelming, where what you thought was certainty? Gives way beneath your feet. Fear takes over and all your good intentions lie in tatters. In what we've just heard read, this is where Peter finds himself. This is a man who boldly declares to Jesus only hours before the events take place. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. While we see Jesus remaining faithful in the midst of the pain and turmoil of a beloved friend's betrayal, we find Peter with faltering faith as he stood waiting in a courtyard. Afraid, alone, disappointed, cold and forgetful, Peter denied the one who loved him most. Imagine the anguish of Peter as a rooster's shrill cry ushered in the shocking realisation that the very thing Peter had swore he'd never do, he had done. Stay with that for a moment. Then consider this. As much as we might want to shake our heads at, at Peter and say, how could you do that? I know I can. Because I get it. You see, I know what it's like to have intentions that are good, but follow through that rapidly fails, falls to pieces. It's one thing to say the words, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. Lord, I won't let you down. I'll deal with that sin in my life. We're in a place of security. But what happens when we get rejected or hurt by someone? When we get tripped up by a past failure? When we feel worn out and disillusioned by disappointment? I wonder then if, like me, it suddenly becomes incredibly difficult to live out those words. Fear, pain and insecurities can wage a massive assault on our hearts. And when that happens, our thoughts and our actions, like Peter's, can rapidly change. Peter had watched Jesus, the one he had seen perform miracles, allow himself to be bound and arrested. Jesus was supposed to be the king who would deliver the Jewish people from the oppression of the Romans. How could this be happening? So in a moment of doubt and bitter bit of disappointment, Peter chose to distance, distance himself from Jesus, distancing himself to the point of complete denial. To deny something is to, is to declare it is untrue. To deny Jesus is to say with our words, thoughts or actions that we don't really believe the truth of who Jesus says he is. Or what he says he'll do. How utterly heartbreaking for Peter, for us and most of all for Jesus, when that happens. But before we give in to feelings of shame, let's consider this from the passage of scripture we just heard read. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, We can pass over it so quickly, but let's just linger there together for a moment. What do you think that exchange of looks conveyed? You see, I don't think for a moment that the look that passed between Jesus and Peter was one of condemnation. It was a knowing look, yes. Jesus knew exactly what Peter had done, but it wasn't an I told you so moment. No, I believe even then, facing all the agony and anguish of the cross, Jesus' eyes were filled with compassion for Peter. The compassion that took him to the cross. Feel the enormity of that look and the freedom that it brings. Ponder on it for a moment knowing it is the very same look of compassion that Jesus has for you and for me. My friends, this is a look that cuts through all Peter had done and all that anyone has ever done and invites us to trust him and draw near to him and partner with him once again. Amen. take courage, all you who wait for the Lord.
6: The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him falling on their knees, they paid homage to him and when they had mocked him they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him.
3: The decision. The final encounter of the battle had begun. Hell was breaking loose. History records it as a battle of the Jews against Jesus. It wasn't. It was a battle of God against Satan. And Jesus knew it. He knew that before the war was over, he would be taken captive. He knew that before victory would come defeat. He knew that before he could sit on the throne again, he would have to drink from the cup of death. And he knew that before the light of Sunday would come the darkness of Friday. This Friday. This Friday where the four horror of hell is known. And he was afraid. The account of the garden tells us so. Never had Jesus felt so alone. What must be done, only he could do. Let the weight of that pull you to the ground. An angel couldn't do it. No angel has the power to break open hell's gates. A human couldn't do it. No human has the purity to destroy sin's claim. No force on earth can face the force of evil and win, except God. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, he cries. His humanity begs to be delivered from what his divinity could see. Jesus, the carpenter, implored. Jesus, the man, peered into the dark pit and begged. Can't there be another way? Did his human heart hope his heavenly father had found another way? We don't know, but we do know he asked to get out. We do know he begged for an exit. We do know there was a moment where he could have turned his back on the whole mess and walked away. But he didn't. Why? What took Jesus to the cross was that he saw you right there in the middle of a world that isn't fair. He saw you cast into a river of life you didn't request. He saw you betrayed by those that you love. He saw you with a body that gets sick and a heart that grows weak. He saw you in your own garden of gnarled trees and sleeping friends. He saw you staring into the pit of your own failures and the mouth of your own grave. He saw you in your garden of Gethsemane and he didn't want you to be alone. He wanted you to know that he has been there too. He knows what it's like to be plotted against. He knows what it's like to be conflicted. He knows what it's like to be torn by two desires. He knows what it's like to smell the stench of Satan. And perhaps most of all, he knows what it's like To beg God to change his mind and to hear God say so gently, but so firmly, no. So in the questioning that turned to obedience, Jesus accepted the answer. The battle was won. The stage was set for the agonies of flogging, of mocking, of slow, painful death. You may have thought the battle was won on Golgotha. It was not. You may have thought the sign of victory was the empty tomb. It wasn't. The final battle was won in Gethsemane. And the sign of conquest was Jesus at peace in the olive trees. For it was in the garden That he made the decision that he would rather go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. So around 9am on that Friday morning, Jesus stumbled to the cleft of Skull Hill. And as a soldier pressed a knee on his forearm and drove a spike through one hand, then the other, and then both feet. As the Romans lifted the cross, they unwittingly placed Christ on the very position in which he came. He came to die between humanity and God, a priest on his own altar. Noises intermingled on the hill, Pharisees mocking, swords clanging, and dying men groaning. Jesus scarcely spoke, but when he did, diamonds sparkled against a backdrop of dark velvet. He gave his killers grace and his mother a son. He answered the prayer of a thief and asked for a drink from the soldier. The battle was nearing its completion, and the bleeding Lamb of God was hanging in agony, utterly alone in his pain, receiving the full force of all that hell could throw at him. And yet, it could never be enough, because the decision in the garden was enough. Jesus. É isso. Enough. Your hearts take courage, all ye who wait for the Lord. Mm-hmm.
7: Today's reading is taken from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. The death of Jesus. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen,
0: Then at midday, darkness fell like a curtain. This was a supernatural darkness, not a casual gathering of clouds or a brief eclipse of the sun. This was a three hour long blanket of blackness. Merchants in Jerusalem lit candles, soldiers ignited torches, parents worried and people everywhere asked from whence comes this noonday night? As far away as Egypt, the historian Dionysius took notice of the black sky and wrote, Either the nature of God is suffering, or the machine of the world is tumbling into ruin. Of course the sky was dark. People were killing the light of the world. My God My God, why have you abandoned me? Have we not asked the same? Why him? Why forsake your son? Forsake the evildoers? Abandon the thieves and the murderers, but not him? Why would God abandon the world's only sinless soul? God does not abandon the righteous. The scriptures say so. But you see, in this hour, Jesus is anything but righteous, but his mistakes aren't his own. Peter the Apostle says this, Christ carried our sins in his body, so we would stop living for sin and start living for what is right. See Christ on the cross? That's a gossiper hanging there. See Jesus? Embezzler, liar, bigot, adulterer, rapist, paedophile, murderer, terrorist. How shocking and abhorrent does that sound to us, to lump Jesus together with the worst of sinners. And yet that is precisely what Jesus did. In fact, he did more than that. He didn't just place his name in the same sentence. He chose in that garden to put himself in their place, in my place and yours. Treat me as you would treat the vilest and the worst of them, he said. And God did. In an act that tore the curtains of the temple in two from top to bottom, in an act that broke the heart of the Father, yet honoured the holiness of heaven. Sin-purging judgment flowed over the sinless sun of the ages. Everything the story had been building to from another garden, that of Eden, landed at this moment with three final words. It is finished. The universe grieved as God said it would. The sky wept and a lamb bleated. Jesus uttered these final words at around three o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the temple sacrifice. It was no accident that about a mile away, as Jesus breathed his last, a temple priest sacrifices a lamb in ignorant futility. Heaven's eyes were not on the lamb of a man. firmly fixed on the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb of God is also the Lion. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. In perfect symmetry, the Lamb of heaven was, was sacrificed, and the Lion of heaven ruled. This was not the cry of despair. It was a cry of completion, a cry of victory, a cry of fulfilment, and a cry of relief. It is finished. The debt is paid. Freedom is won. And the whole of heaven roared. Take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And so now we'll join in and say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. We'll gather again either in person or online on Easter Sunday at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock to celebrate Christ's victory over the cross and the grave. But for now, a final prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, the story of your suffering is written on our hearts and the salvation of the world is in your outstretched hands. Keep your victory ever before our eyes, your praise on our lips your peace in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.